0: turn me over to Luke I want to thank everyone who um, is making it with us for the first time today we appreciate you making Easter uh, the place where you would call us home today and so we're very grateful and we trust that the offering that we give to Christ today will be sufficient enough to minister to you and If we find favor in your sight, you'd come back. The title of the message today is, Seeing Jesus on Your Road. Seeing Jesus on Your Road. Luke 24, 13 through 32. Luke 24, 13 through 32. It says, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place, And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But twenty-one, we were hoping that it was he who was going to to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us were uh, uh, women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body they came saying that they had also seen visions of angels who said he was alive some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said but him they did not see and he said to them oh foolish men and slow of heart to believe In all that the prophets have spoken, verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going and acted, and he acted as though he were going farther, verse 29. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined the table with them, he took bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, verse 32. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Lord, help us as we study your word. Three things in this passage I want to highlight. One, men speaking. Two, men listening. And three, men seeing. This is a a really special account. The detail in this passage highlights the fact of the reality of a human being that had risen from the dead, was actually interacting with folks because, generally speaking, angels don't do it like this. But this was the third time in this day that Jesus had revealed himself as the resurrected Christ. And these men were privileged to be able to have that revelation on this day, without question, the greatest day in human history, the day Jesus rose from the dead. Without question. And these men were privileged to actually not just see him, but have him walk with them for like hours. It says it was seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. That's like starting here on Route 50 and heading all the way to 66. That's about seven miles away. Walking. It'd take you three, four hours to get there. And we don't know at what point Jesus entered into the journey, but it was long enough whereby relationship was developed and they asked him to stay and he was able to talk about stuff and they were able to talk with him. and Kind of conversation that probably would have gone on even longer had not things transpired that made Jesus depart. And they got to be with him. You have no idea how close Jesus is to you. He's journeying with you on your walk. But you don't recognize him. You don't understand that he's there. Just like these men, for some reason your eyes have been prevented from seeing that which you need to see. But it's not because God doesn't want to show you. I think it's because of the hardness of our hearts that the revelation of Christ demands change. You can't stay the way you are when you understand who he is. You cannot because then the mirror is put in front of you and you realize what you're created to be and you are so far from that. You have to change. And so God allows you the privilege of having an opportunity to understand that he is with you in your journey but you have to have a heart that's willing to accept all that that means. If not, you're prevented. Casting pearls before swine is still a strategy Jesus does not employ. And these men had an opportunity. Wow. But they were the third. There was another opportunity before them, too. Mary of Magdala saw Jesus first. She came to the tomb. She didn't have enough time because the Sabbath had come. Now, the Jewish way of calculating days started at 6 p.m., not at 12 a.m. like we start days. And the Sabbath had come on that Friday Jesus had been crucified. You can't work on the Sabbath. And so they did what they could in order to prepare his body for burial, mummify him, but they could not finish. And so they they put him in the tomb and they planned to come back after the Sabbath and finish the preparations. And this was generally the job of the women in the team and so Mary and a woman named Joanna, if you look at Matthew and you superimpose all of these accounts of the resurrection, they came to the tomb to try to finish what they were doing. And I'm convinced that this was probably a, a process that was cathartic, important to their healing, because it's kind of obvious that the person that you're tending to doesn't care. He's dead. But it was important for them to do something for him. Why? Because he had done everything for them, especially Mary. And so, Joanna and Mary rise early to finish the preparations. They get to the tomb, and to their surprise, though they should not have been surprised because he was very plain about his resurrection intentions, to their surprise, he's not there. And God mercifully sent some angels to try to help them. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And and these women are talking to these angels. I mean, they're talking to angels at the tomb where Jesus is no longer. And he's already said he's going to rise. And all the angels are doing are repeating what he said. And they are not believing any of it. I mean, big angels are seated on either side of the slab where Jesus was laid. And they're talking. And they think somehow the body has been taken. Now, if I could just for a moment help you with the understanding of how implausible that would be. First of all, there was an armed guard of 36 men guarding the tomb. Romans. And some of them may have been Herodians, people that were armed with the Jewish authority. But their, their responsibility was to make sure that body did not leave that tomb. And there was a 2,000-pound stone that was rolled in front of a cave, which was a tomb. And there was a V in which the stone was rolled like this. And so it would take a number of men to roll the stone, first of all. It would take even more to try to roll it out of the V. And then you've got to deal with the soldiers. Who Who would do that? You're risking your life for a dead body. And then when they come in and see the, the, the slab, it says in John that the, 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 the linens which, in which Jesus was wrapped were intact with the head wrap sitting where the head would be. You mean whoever stole the body? Decided to wrap it first. (laughs) Why would they do that? Do you know what happens to a body in a couple of days? Skin just falls off. It's it's bad. Who would do that? And so there are so many things that God left as clues to let us in our understanding understand. This wasn't what you think it was. This was supernatural. I actually rose through those linens. I'm not bound by temporal reality or or common everyday barriers. I can walk in and out of walls. An amazing thing. Side note. Mary's there talking to the angels. And she's still despondent. Doesn't believe a thing they're saying. And I'm convinced, obviously, angels don't have a mind of their own. They do. But everything they do is obey God. And so God sent these angels to help Mary and, and Joanna. And it was one of these, they had to return to the Father and say, we did our best. This one here can't be helped. I mean, we, did, we told them what you told us to say, but they wouldn't believe any of it. So if you really want them helped, uh, you probably got to go yourself. <laughs> Mary, on hearing and speaking with the angels, went straight back to the disciples and said, They've taken the body. Ah! Peter and John then run to the tomb. And they see it exactly as she said, Empty. And then they leave, and, and Mary comes back, probably not able to run as fast as Peter and John. And so she comes back. When they go back, she comes back to the tomb. And there she is. Why? Because you've got to understand something about Mary. It was cathartic for anyone who wanted to assist in the process of burial, but especially for this woman. She's known as Mary of Magdalene. We don't even have her last name. She's commonly known as Mary Magdalene. But that's not her last name that just describes where she's from and she is the only one of the band of people who surrounded the disciples meaning the extended leadership team the only one who number one is single and number two is described by way of nomenclature as coming from a city not connected to a family member so when we see there are a bunch of marys in the new testament by the way when we see mary we see mary the mother of jesus We see Mary, the mother of James and John. We see Joanna, the wife of Clopas. We see all these women who are connected that happen to be supporters of Christ's ministry defined by who they're connected to relationally. But Mary, we only see her defined by where she lived, which gives you a clue about some things. Number one, she probably wasn't married, or it would have been Mary who was the wife of so-and-so. But it doesn't mean she wasn't married before. And I surmise this from the fact that she was a supporter of Christ's ministry financially. Most women were not openly mobile. It's not like you could have equal pay for equal work. There weren't the kind of jobs even available for women that could give them the kind of resources whereby now you could support another man's ministry and his whole team for them not to have to work. So she probably was married before her husband passed and she inherited the resources. We also think that she probably didn't have any kids. If she did, those kids were older because she would not have left the babies. Number two, if they were older kids, they weren't a part of this band called the Disciples of the Extended Leadership because she would have been known much like Mary, mother of James and John, would have been known because James and John were part of the Disciples which means she was all by herself. And before Christ met her, she was a a troubled woman. It says that this was a woman from whom seven demons were cast out. Now, I don't know if you know anything about devils or demons, but they're pretty formidable. And if you have one, it's a bad day. It'll mess with your life, your entire life. If you got seven, you're in trouble. You don't just have issues. You are intolerable to be around. You say stuff you don't mean all the time and very hurtful. You do stuff you don't want to do and you don't know how to stop. I recently came from a trip to Israel. It was just great back in February. And we went to the town of Magdala. They've excavated it. You can see the place where the the tabernacle was and houses and businesses, and it's really cool. It was a a port city, (coughs) excuse me, a fishing city near the ports that are on the Sea of Galilee. Right next to the town where Jesus had had his ministry in Capernaum. That's where his mother and he lived, and that's where Peter came from as well and some of the other disciples. But Magdala was fairly close, and as we think of cities, we think it's it, we would think it pretty small back then. It was pretty significant. It didn't. It wasn't walled. It wasn't that big. But mm, probably had three, four hundred people in it, which was a significant town. And as we traversed it, we could best make out that it was probably about twenty acres at the most. wasn't a big place. So if you got three, four hundred people in twenty acres. Generally, everybody knows everybody else. And if you got seven devils, everybody knows. Small things like that travel fast in small towns. And everybody probably knew this woman, and everybody had this disposition concerning her. We know her. Stay away. Stay away. Jesus was the only one who said, I know you, come close see he was in the area this is where he did his adult ministry Magdala and Capernaum are just less than a couple of miles away and they would they would all go down to the the feast together they would caravan everybody knew everybody in that area Jesus was the only one that said come close and then he got her delivered nobody had treated this woman like Jesus and so she said I'm I'm, I'm, going to follow you wherever you go. We don't have those words, but we do have them through her actions. Having said that, when you have seven seven demons cast from you, you're proud and happy to be delivered, but it doesn't mean your soul is healed. I've been around long enough in ministry to have a number of deliverance sessions with people and see how demons affect the soul. There's a cracking that goes on down on the inside. Instability is normal. And and, and folks who get delivered aren't yet healed. They need a lot of time. Here's a woman who probably had not yet come to the full place of wholeness. And the one that she was so appreciative to was not gone. She was distraught out of her mind. Why? For all the reasons I just said. And she was the only single woman in the bunch. She had nobody else. Nobody. What was she going to do now? Peter couldn't care for her like Jesus did. Andrew couldn't. Philip couldn't. She's a tag-along. She's an extra. She's sitting at that tomb trying to figure out life. So after Peter and John go back, she's there, and she's trying to, to calibrate and I, I guess the conversation between the angels and God, when something like this, if you want her help, you have to go yourself, because we did our best. You're going to have to go yourself. So Jesus shows up. Oh. Now, we know this about Jesus, that he showed up, and, and, and the conversation ensued that sounded something like this. Mary he calls her name. He hold, she holds on to him, and he says, let me go, because I've got to go to the Father. I haven't been there yet. Jesus thought so much of of Mary being healed and helped that he delayed an appointment with the Father. (laughs) You have no idea how he attends to your needs. You have no idea. So she's there at the tomb. He appears, and she supposes he's the gardener. And she says, "If, if you tell me where you've laid him, I'll go get him. And then he says, Mary... And the way he said it, he must have said it to where it it was like nobody else could say it. And I'm letting you know, I can call your name, but when God does, oh, it sounds so different. And God's calling you today. Listen. Don't turn your hearing aid off. Listen. Because he can say your name like no other. He said, Mary, she said, Rabotei! Immediate recognition. Because he said it like nobody else could. Rabboni means teacher in Aramaic. And she went and grabbed him. And she held on. You know, you ever been in one of those uncomfortable hug moments? <laughs> yeah? You know, where you're done, <laughs> but the other party isn't? You ever been there? It's like, okay, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Oh, this is, this is great, isn't it? We're having a good time. That's what this was. Why? She lost him once. She wasn't going to lose him again. She held on. And when you find Jesus, I pray you hold on to such a degree that you make him say what he had to say to her. You're going to have to let me go. You got to let me go. You hold on like that. He said, I got to go to the Father. You have to let me go. That was the first revelation of him post-resurrection. He then appeared to the other women who came with her to the tomb the first time and told them, go tell your brothers I've risen from the dead. Mary and the other women went to tell the disciples they didn't believe a thing they said. Not a thing. They thought, women, I'm not being disparaging. I'm being real. That's what they thought probably. Women, they're seeing stuff. You know. You know women. Sick. Sick. Now, in between Jesus revealing himself to Mary and Jesus revealing himself to the other women, Peter and John came to the tomb. Jesus could have revealed himself to them. He could have. Intentionally did not. And I'm convinced that Jesus loves to take the lowly and raise them up. The people who are less than in society, considered by others less than in society, he wants to elevate them to the place where now other people understand how God thinks about them. This is what I, this is what I think, this is how I value them. The women in the team got to see me first. You would have thought Peter and John and all the disciples who were most important to the architecture of what we now know as a church, it would have been really important for them to be first. They could, they could brag about it. They could have some, some, some degree of feather in their cap saying, I deserve to lead this thing because I saw them first at the tomb. Mm-mm. No bragging rights. They would now have to get the first report from women. And they didn't believe it. And when Jesus appeared to them finally, the disciples, one of the first things he said was, why didn't you believe them? He rebuked them for their unbelief in the women's reports. Oh, ladies, I'm convinced that God has a special place in his heart for you. I really am. And we do our best here to try to recognize that. We don't believe there's a ceiling for women in this house. Nah, let me me qualify that. We believe the ceiling for women in this house is the same as the ceiling for men in this house. Now, it has nothing to do with me trying to figure out how I can be culturally relevant. It's not because I'm an advocate of women's rights, though I think equal pay for equal work and all that stuff is really good. It's because I believe my Bible. And I read my Bible a lot, and I may not be as accurate as I should be, but the stuff I know to be true, I try to tell you. And I understand what I know to be true about women in the Bible as being that which allows them to do anything that God wants them to. And the anointing and grace to accomplish things should not have a cap on it because somebody has a chapter and verse that may not be found in its context when they say it or use it. He didn't reveal himself to Peter and John when they came to the tomb. They didn't even get angels. (laughs) They didn't even get angels. And then we've got this Revelation the third road to Emmaus. (laughs) Oh, gosh. These guys are leaving Jerusalem because the Passover feast is over. So everybody has come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, we think, was about 200,000 people as as, as inhabitants of the city. But when the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booth, three feasts to which the Israelites had to come from wherever you were in the world, you had to descend upon Jerusalem. Three feasts probably swelled the numbers to a million at that time. That, that's how many people showed up. After the feast was done, everybody went back home, wherever they were from. And so most people would have left after the Sabbath was over, and that would have been six o'clock on Saturday evening. But these guys were part of the disciples, not part of the 11 that were left after Judas did what he did, but part of the broader group. And they, they had this idea in their mind about the third day thing, and they even mentioned it in this passage. Chief priest killed him, and there was something about a third day he was supposed to fix stuff. And so they stayed all the way till the third day. But the third day didn't happen like they thought it was going to happen. And so, (laughs) sure enough, Jesus rose. But they didn't believe the report that he did when people saw him. And they thought it was going to be very different. All they were looking at. In their minds is history and the facts that nobody has ever risen from the dead on their own. And we saw him die. We saw the women preparing the body. He was dead as dead could be. We don't know how you get undead. That's all they were thinking about is the present circumstances, what their natural five senses were telling them. They weren't thinking about what he said. They weren't thinking about the word. They weren't thinking about the power of God that wanted to redeem them by the resurrection and make them brand new. They weren't thinking about any of that, even though Jesus had told them so many times. And it's amazing how you can develop amnesia. Those circumstances begin to talk so loud, you can't remember a thing God said to you. He said he's going to take you through. Like he told the disciples, get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side. Mark chapter 3. That's what he said, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. A storm came up as they were in the middle of the sea. Peter looks at Jesus, who happens to be sleeping in the hull, and says, why aren't you helping us bail? Do you not care that we are perishing? Water was coming in faster than they can put it out. Jesus got up on the bow of the boat and went, shh, hush hush be still. And he said to the disciples, where's your faith? Meaning this, do you remember what I said when we got in the boat? What did I say? What did I say? Get in the boat. We're going to the other side. What about this storm made you think that it would nullify what I said? When the storm comes, you forget everything that God said. I beg you don't do that. That's what these men did. Dead is dead. It didn't matter what he said, dead is dead. And they missed an opportunity. Here they are talking. And they're talking about the facts without the faith. (laughs) And when you talk about facts without faith, you're always inaccurate. You may not be totally wrong, but you aren't right enough to make great decisions. When you talk about facts without faith, you are inaccurate at best. You could be totally wrong, but you are definitely not on point. So they were speaking, and it had to go something like this. We don't have the whole conversation, but what was that? I mean, we gave up our lives for this guy. He was supposed to be the king, the Messiah who was sit on the throne, and, and, and the, the one David talked about, and, and the one everybody was hoping for, and the throne would never have an end point. He would always reign, and it would always be increased to the government. It would never stop expanding, and we thought he was the guy, and all of us were going to be you know, government employees and appointees, and, and we were going to have jobs, and now he's dead. What was that? What was that? How, what are we supposed to do now? I thought I had a job. I ain't got a job. What, what was that? What was that? That's how they were talking probably. And then Jesus shows up. And they are prevented from understanding who he is. As I said earlier, because of their lack of faith. Because they are only looking at what they know. And then he asks them, what is you talking about? And then they... (laughs) They don't even know it's him, and so it's hard to really blame them. But later on, they had to really kind of say, that was stupid. They say this, are you the only one without a clue? Everything has happened in Jerusalem, and you're the only one who doesn't know? What things? Jesus playing dumb. Now, they were prevented from seeing him, I think, because of doubt and unbelief. The lack of faith and being able to apply the right theology to the circumstance. But it's also one of those things where you don't, if you don't expect somebody to be in a spot, then sometimes your context doesn't allow you the information necessary to understand that you know them. You ever been there with somebody where you see them out of place? And you sit there and you look at them and you say, "I, I Do I know? Mm, yeah. Mm, I think no. Mm, yeah. Who are you? And your brain doesn't work as well. And I think part of that was going on too. They didn't think he was alive. And so he begins to, to, to converse with him and they're talking. And now when they tell him the things that they don't think he knows, he then says, let me talk to you for a minute. And now it's your turn to listen. And it says he laid out for them everything the Old Testament had to say about who he was. Prophecies, things he had fulfilled. Again, he's not telling them who he is, but he is telling them about everything from Moses all the way to now. Every prophet. This is what Moses said. This is what David said. This is what Isaiah said. This is what Jeremiah said. This is what Zechariah said. And I, I imagine they're sitting there thinking, who is this dude? I mean, it's like he knows more than us and we were with him. Who is this guy? And they keep, he keeps talking. They're going, I you. Yeah, of course, absolutely, wow, yeah, hours. If we listen, it's better than not listening, but it's not enough. Because listening makes you smarter, it doesn't make you better. And they weren't getting better as a result of listening, they were just getting smarter more theology, correct understanding, but nothing to transformed their heart yet. And we as a church are all about helping you. We really are. But we want you to get better, not smarter. And I'm really grateful you decided to come to us on Easter special. A lot of places you could go. But, I, but I'm hoping that you walk away from this encounter thinking that whatever I said If it was accurate, it's not enough. I've got to apply it to my life. So on Tuesday, it really makes a difference. And I can be a better dad, a better wife, a better employee, a better friend. It's not enough just to clock in on Easter and say, God, I want you to know I'm for you. Showed up when I was supposed to. But there's a lot of times you showed up, a lot of times you didn't show up when you were supposed to. not about you smarter, it's better. And God wants to make you so much better. And you need to be better because your version of, of your best life is so far below, below the bar of what God wants. You have no idea how great he wants to make you. But you've got to submit yourself to the better in order to become better. And he is walking with you. You have the privilege of God enduring with all your junk on a daily basis because he loves you so much. You aren't the best company. I mean, God is God. He can make good company if he wants it. And he chooses to walk with bread. Are you kidding me? I'm your best option? Wow, I feel bad for you. I really feel bad for you. But he loves you like that. He cares for you like that. And he's willing to put up with your wrong thoughts, my wrong ideas, my wrong words, my wrong actions because he cares about me. And Jesus was listening to all this doubt and unbelief from these guys. And the only thing, he is so merciful, the only thing he says to them, after all of their junk, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe, Do you know how much all of us deserve death? I'm not trying to be morbid on this, this happy day. But I do want to make sure that I amplify the happiness you ought to have. Because the only way you can be really appreciative if, is if you know exactly what you didn't have to go through. And we, we feel so entitled so often that our starting point of gratefulness begins when we get what we want. As soon as we get what we want, God answers our prayer. Thank you, Lord. Oh, we're so grateful you're a good God. And if he doesn't, oh, that generally doesn't come from our mouths. Hey, you know I'm down here? Just want you to know, have you forgotten about me? We feel so entitled. And as soon as we get a long list of things not answered, then we begin to question whether he cares about us. That's how entitled we are. Now, there's there's nothing wrong with asking God questions. There's a lot wrong with questioning him because that question, do you care for me, is best answered by the sacrifice that was given on your behalf. So we need need to, to bring the starting line back a little bit rather than making it the place at which we say, well, you answered my prayer. I want you to know how grateful I am. Let's start way back here. I deserve death. The wages of sin is death. I've sinned a lot. I was really good at it. I had savings accounts. I'd gained so many wages from from sin. I had 403Bs. I, I, I had saved up. My wages were so great. And I'm still breathing. I'm still breathing. So if I come back here as a starting point at which I need to be grateful, it really doesn't matter, though I would love for things to go really well. It really doesn't matter with respect to how much gratefulness and honor and praise I give him as to whether things go right with me today at all. I just start from the basis, the the least common denominator. I ain't going to hell. It's all a good day. Even if my day's wrecked, it's a good day. And Jesus is listening to this doubt and unbelief that is spewing from these guys' mouths. And all he says is, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe. Parents, if, if you tell your child what is the right thing to do, and you, you let them know the consequences is they do the wrong thing, and you tell them over and over and over and over and over, and they finally do the wrong thing. And you're sitting there scratching your head. Is your, is your best response, I mean, this is probably knee-jerk for you, right? Oh, foolish child. <laughs> Slow of heart to believe. <laughs> uh, probably not. More like, have you lost your mind? What in the world's wrong with you? Did not tell you not to do that? What, you, is your brain not working? Is your brain not working? We go through all kind of conniptions. <laughs> Self-control has just sprouted wings and flown away. <laughs> Our natural response is not, Oh, foolish child. <laughs> Slow of heart to believe. God is so merciful with us. He is so merciful with Brett. And then... He helps them in their unbelief by explaining all this stuff about the prophets, and they are blown away, and as I close, after listening for maybe an hour and a half, their hearts are burning, but they can't figure out what it is, and they've come to Emmaus, and uh, they're there, and they're about to stop, and Jesus acts like he's going farther. But they say, would you stay with us? This is why I say that it's important to not look at Sunday morning as being the stopping point for your progress. Because you need to invite Jesus into your Monday. Into your relationships, into your employment, into your commute on 66 you need to invite Jesus. But because you feel like you've gotten all you need on a Sunday morning, you can let him just keep on going. I got this job. I got this relationship. I got all this. Listen, you have many other things to attend to in the world. You know, I'm not going to bother you. I got this. Don't worry about it, Jesus. Go on. I'll see you next year. And we let him go rather than invite him into our world, inviting him allows you to become better because it's not just about information. It's about relationship. They begged him to stay. Please beg him to accompany you on Monday. Don't let him go. As a result, he stays with them. And, and they're reclining at table. That's what they did. They didn't sit. They actually were like on chase lounges that were to 45 degree angle and that's how they ate and he got bread and he broke it and he gave it to him and and when he gave it to him he says their eyes were opened and they realized it was jesus they don't say much but they just kind of like oh oh and then as soon as they react he's gone just pops out just gone and i imagine they were sitting there oh I do mean, so much I want to take. I want to ask you. Oh, we were stupid. <laughs> oh, we were really Oh, we were dumb. Oh, why, why, wait, 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 wait. He was with us. We were for two, two hours. Oh, we missed it. I could have had a V8. I'm sure my age. I'm sorry. It's a commercial back in the 80s where people were drinking stuff that wasn't as good as V8. And everybody would say, I could have had a V8. Jesus is with you on your journey. He's with you, but you don't recognize it. And I beg you, don't wait to the end of your journey. Don't wait to the end of your life. So many people are saying, yeah, you know, I'm good. When I really need him, I'll get him. I, I have some priorities. I got to get my job. I got to get my family. I got to get all these things in order. And somewhere around 50, 60, I'll get to the point where, you know, I'll give my life and stuff. Now, he'll take you whenever he can get you. That's how much he loves you, and that's how merciful he is. But you may not have the opportunity to make that decision. Things happen. Secondly, you will have missed 50 years where you could have had a V8. Oh, the conflict that was going on in these guys' soul. How did he, he... the only one who's risen from the, and we were with him the entire, and we may, oh, we're glad he's alive, but we could have. Oh, what could have been? Oh, we were so disrespectful. Oh, I said, are you the only one who doesn't have a clue? Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's real bad. Oh, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. You get to the end of your life You don't want to realize that you're an idiot. He's walking with you. Open your eyes. If you don't, he's merciful. And it says he broke the bread, gave it to him. Their eyes are open. The breaking of the bread can be seen in two ways. One, his life broken for us. And when you understand what he did on the cross for you, (laughs) you begin to see him differently. All you want to do is just live for him because nobody loved you like that. Nobody's taken your whooping. Nobody took your punishment. Nobody took your consequences. On the cross, he did all that because he loved you. He didn't have to suffer for his own stuff. He suffered for you. He was the only one who did all right and thus became the substitutionary benefit for all of us who did all wrong. And he took your whooping so he could give you his righteousness Oh, it's a great exchange. But in doing so, it required that his life be taken and he be broken in such a way that no man has ever been broken. He actually became sin. He didn't just take on your sin, he he became it. And it says that he was not even recognizable. That's how bad it was. It's horrible. When you understand him being broken, all you want to do is live for him every day. Your eyes are open, but there's a second breaking here that needs to be recognized. It wasn't just the bread of his life being broken. It's the bread of your life being broken. Generally speaking, people don't just wake up one day and say, Well, today's a great day to give my life to God. I think I'll do it. Yep, yep, yep. It's Tuesday. (laughs) Most people come to church. Because your life is a wreck. It's broken. He's done this to you. And when God does this, we normally blame it on the devil. But see, none of us live right enough to be able to blame everything on the devil. I mean, there, there's so much stuff we do wrong. And most of it is the ignorance of the direction in which we're going. So every day we're, we're, we're driving and we're breaking... Through bridge out signs, big signs, eight foot long, huge letters bridge out, and we bust through it thinking, ah, that's not for me. That's for everybody else. I know what I'm doing. They get judged, not me. I'm cool. Another bridge outside. Yeah, that's for that other dude over there. He's in trouble. I mean, he's in, he needs to stop. Me, uh-uh, I got this. And we keep going, and we keep going, and we keep going. And then God causes our car to seize. No oil. The engine just, and you can't go anyplace. And generally, this is our response. God, why'd you break my car? Why'd you do that to me, God? You know I don't have the money to fix it, God. Why, Lord, you don't care about me? The bridge was out. The bridge was out. He'll break you to bring you to himself. He'll break you. I'd rather recognize him on the walk than in the breaking. In the breaking, you'll see him differently. It, your eyes will be open. Oh, I think I need God now more than ever. Oh, what was that passage again in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. Oh, he loves me. Okay, I'm going to church breaking's tough. You see him, but it's hard. The walking's much less consequential with respected difficulty. He's walking with you now. Don't wait to the end of your life, nor the breaking, to try to figure out how to find him. Let's pray.